Today, you will hear the views and ideas of our podcast guests. We're eager to showcase their expertise and provide a platform for their views, but they may not always reflect or align with the views of the positive effect or the MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions. Welcome to Podcast. We are created by and for people living with HIV. On each episode, we explore what it means to be Pause. We challenge the status quo, and we share stories that matter to us. I'm James Watson, and I'm HIV positive. If you're living with HIV, listen up. You're all gung ho. You're 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 ready to go, and then COVID hits. Yeah. What happens? What happens because she cares? Uh, well, I that's the thing. I submitted a postdoc based on us doing this, and I'm like what do we do? And I thought, ah, it might only be two months. We'll still plan this. Well, no. (laughs) So we had to think, what are we going to do now? We have a great show for you. This is Pausecast. February is Black History Month, and it's the perfect opportunity for us to revisit and celebrate the Because She Cares initiative. African, Caribbean, and Black HIV-positive women have always been at the forefront of the HIV and AIDS response in Canada. And those of us engaged in the movement, we all know it, we see it in our day-to-day work, but their engagement as paid workers is not nearly recognized enough. Because She Cares, in case you aren't familiar, started as a qualitative research study and uses performance and poetry to share the stories of African, Caribbean, and Black immigrant women employed in AIDS service organizations. And it highlights some pretty emotional and serious issues around employment, but in beautifully crafted and dynamic creative ways. I mean, it's not often you associate research with creative expression or poetic arts, but this is why Because She Cares stands out, and why so many people are drawn to this work, and why it keeps growing and thriving. We originally recorded on this study back in 2017, but so much has happened in this world since then, and it feels like a lifetime ago. COVID, well, that happened, and it's still happening, Uh, but so is Because She Cares. And somehow, a poetry anthology book got published, and 12 short films are soon to be released. So before we revisit the 2017 episode, I caught up with my friend, Lori Chambers, the Because She Cares founder, project director, producer, and co-author, and frequent contributor to podcast to get an update on all things Because She Cares. Lori, hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you, James? Long time no speak. I know. I'm good. I'm good. Now, last time I spoke to you on podcast was about five years ago. Wow. You were, I know, you were a PhD candidate in the School of Social Work at McMaster University. And because she cares was your doctoral thesis, and a lot's happened since then. So before we dive into because she cares, why don't you tell me a little bit about your journey? Like you graduated, you're a doctor now. What's that like? Yes. So it's the same in terms of community-based research. They they say, don't think that just because you're a doctor that things have changed. (laughs) They always remind me. But it gives me some credibility for applying for grants, which is good. Right. Um, And even though I've left academia for a while to work in public service, 
I came back to do a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Toronto. And I use that fellowship to revisit Because She Cares. Oh, so what is a postdoctoral fellowship? Well, (laughs) it is somewhat, yes. A lot of people use postdoctoral fellowships to prepare them for academic life. It's like uh, academia. It's like professoral training with the training wheels on. Okay. So you get mentorship by someone who is already in the professorate. In some cases, you get to work alongside of them on the project where you, you're, you're a co-lead on that project. Um, I was lucky enough to get someone who um, encouraged me to actually revisit because she cares. So I do some work with her, but um, I advise her on, on some community-based research activities. But the main thing I do um, is because she cares and translating it into an educational um, kind of um yeah, it's performance educational right. intervention, quote unquote. Okay. I call it workshop. I call it intervention when we look for funds. I call it a workshop <laughs> when we're not. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so when you l- left academia, was part because she cares sort of on hold until you came back? Not really. It was slowed down though. Okay. Um, yeah, we actually ended up doing some performances. So basically, as soon as I submitted my thesis saying that, yay, I'm finished, the next week we actually did the performance. Oh. And we did, yeah, we did a performance with about 80 people. And it was mainly people who worked in aid service organizations, but also um, it was amongst um, artists and some researchers. And um, in talks with them, they suggested to keep on going, but to not just do the play itself, to also have dialogue go with it. Right. So I was able to get some funding um, from um, Women College Hospitals. Um, they used to have something called the Exchange and Women's Exchange. And it was it gave us some seed funding that allowed us to do a couple of performances in ASOs um, in the GTHA. So aid and, service organizations, yeah? Yes, aid yeah. service organizations um, and uh, associated organizations. We did one in an aid service organization in um, Niagara Falls and one in a community health organization in Toronto. And those two events, we would follow by what we call kitchen table talks, which is post-performance, we engage the audience, we split them up into smaller groups and we engage them in a dialogue to talk about some of the themes that came about and what really resonated with them in the play and how might we use the teachings of the play to um, encourage people to take action to ensure the the care and well-being of African, Caribbean, and Black women. Okay, okay. So So we did that. And what we found is when we did it with women with lived experience of it, African, Caribbean, Black women live with HIV, they talked about certain things. When we did it with people who we call, quote-unquote, allies, um, people who are ACB but not necessarily positive, and also people who are not ACB, not positive, but work in the sector, we got different reactions. Hmm. And we thought, ooh, that's really interesting. Maybe we should do this again, where we actually target these three different groups and see, you know, what really resonates with them and how might this be an actual educational tool that addresses not just HIV stigma, but also intersectional forms of oppression. Anti-Black racism was coming out. Ableism was coming out. Right. 
and also credentialization of Canadian credentialization. Oh, so sure, stuff like yeah. that was coming out. And what was really interesting was seeing how different people saw different things and also how they reacted. And I thought, let's do this again, but be targeted. So I applied for a postdoc. Someone told me to apply for a postdoc. I did. Got it. Started writing. This is what we're going to do. And then March 2020 happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so plans had to change. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So before we get into that monolith of COVID and all that and the, the, the grand pivot, I want to talk a little bit about how you're defining Because She Cares. Because I never know what to call it anymore. Is yeah. it a research study? Is it a collective? Is it an initiative? Is it a project? Is it performance art? Or is it all of the above? All of the above. We call it a project for simplicity's sake. But what it's two things right now. One thing it's called is an um, integrated knowledge translation and mobilization project. Ouch. Okay. Ouch. <laughs> well, no, just, that's a lot of words. Okay. It's a lot of words. So use acronyms. <laughs> what um, integrated stands for is that we integrate the process of knowledge sharing and knowledge mobilizing throughout the whole project. Oh, okay. Translation is we take research findings and translate it in a way that can be disseminated for audience receptivity. Okay. Mobilization is we don't just share it, we do something with it. And that something is either we use it to educate, to excite, to insight, to activate. Love it. That's great. Love it. Great explanation. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. But a lot of people thought like you, big words, big words. Right. So (laughs) we thought it's actually education because what we do, especially with the kitchen table talks, is actually mobilize knowledge to get people to not only be aware of some of the issues that come about for African Caribbean black women who work in the sector, but also get them to really be troubled by it and see what can we do about Mm. it. So we thought, you know what, why don't we talk more about why this is educational and, you know, what are the theories that actually support why this is working? Why, you know, African Caribbean black women who have lived experience of this as women living with HIV say, these are my stories. And this is really connects. I'm really more aware now how I feel like tokenized or silenced or why allies would say, you know what? Oh my God. I never realized I do this. I really have to be mindful of this. Right. So let's, let's circle back to that March 20. 20? 20. I know. Um, yes. You're all gung-ho. You're, you're, you're ready to go. And then COVID hits. Yeah. What happens? What happens to Because She Cares? Uh, well, I, that's the thing. I submitted a postdoc based on us doing this. And I'm like, what do we do? And I said, ah, it might only be two months. We'll still plan right. this. Well, no. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, when we talked uh, like a year prior about how we could continue the project, we did talk about doing film. We talked about more to ensure that people outside, like we didn't always have to perform it, like find money for travel. So we thought it might be a way to reach people abroad, like our people in Calgary, people in other er regions where um, this phenomena is really relevant. But then we had to revisit again. We had to say, okay, if we use film, 
how can we use film? And how can we do it during a pandemic? So started talking to filmmakers, you know, some mentioned using um, animation because mm. we already did have some illustrations with the work. But then I actually talked with um, Roseanne Bailey. She's not only a visual artist, but she's also a filmmaker. And she said, why don't we find a way to make it work? And then when restrictions get to a point where we can actually do some filming, we'll do films with one or two people. Right. And that will keep us within the limits. I said, oh, that's genius. And then she said, why don't you, instead of doing a big film, do shorts? She said, spoken word performance is what makes it so strong. Keep that in there. But just do little short films about, you know, a certain am amount of the poetic retellings that you have. Right. So you're staying... You're staying with those particular poems. You haven't expanded that repertoire, right? Not yet, right. no. We basically have a roster of, I think, 32 um, poetic retellings or poems. Of those, some were chosen for the, the play. For the film, we kept to, to most of them, but some others were chosen um, because they illustrated certain themes that we felt weren't illustrated in the play but have been talked about in Kitchen Table Talks. Oh, okay. Yeah. So in the end, it wasn't me. It was a group of ACB women living with HIV who actually selected. They said, these are poems that I would like to see translated into film. Right. So where are you in that process? Like, do you have the films made? Yeah. Really? It's, oh yeah, God. it was quite a journey. We have the films made. We are actually planning to showcase them. Um, we had the rough films, like we had 12 rough films made and, uh, we actually started piloting them, showing them, having kitchen table talks. The plays work on a different level. I still, I, the plays are our first child. Right. The films are really interesting because they use, and I don't want to reveal too much, but they use a combination of real lived experience and metaphor to accentuate certain things that okay. microaggressions, and I'll go back. Microforms or small everyday forms of discrimination are very hard to tell in film. So sometimes you have to use metaphor to make the micro macro. Visual and metaphor or? Visual metaphor. Oh, okay. And that's what the films allow. So that's one thing that I loved about the films. They actually took something that was, you know, in my head and going, how do people see that? And it, show it in a way that people do get it. Oh, cool. Yeah, so right now we're just working with sound and it's, we're going to be showcasing it in a couple of weeks. Okay, so there's 12 of them, is that right? There's 12, yes, wow. 12 short films. Okay. And we're going to put them together in a screening. Um, in total, when you put the 12 short films together plus intros, um, it works out to about 60 minutes. But the films range from two minutes to about six, six seven minutes okay and w and obviously it's going to be some sort of online i guess release yes it's going to be online we had talked to a venue uh, about maybe making it hybrid before omnicron right, <laughs> right. <laughs> but now we're going to make it totally online okay and I, I assume people can go to your website at some point to f discover how they might be able to access this yes yes when people hear this podcast they should go to www.becausheycares.com check our event page and they'll get information on our event okay fantastic okay so let me also think about this so you have a book out what's it called now um, poetry anthology a poetry yes. anthology out 
which is uh, how long ago did that come out? That came out in uh, 2018. Um, We had a hard copy that we gave to people. Now we also have it online. Oh, because it's online. So people can also go to that website and do it. Yes, as of last week. Oh, okay. Oh, good timing. (laughs) Okay, great. Yeah, so they can just download it from there. Uh, they can't download it, but they can read it. They can read it. Can they buy it? Uh, not yet. Okay. And I will, I, they probably will never be able to buy it. And the reason being is it was funded by research. I don't think charging people would be right. Fair enough. Okay. No, that's good. That's good. Okay. So what do you see for Because She Cares in the next five years? Is there going to be a next five years? Hmm. I don't know, five years? Um, and then if I say that, so we'll say to be one of the performers go, yes, it will be for five <laughs> years, 10. I think we're at a point now where the one thing we have to revisit is right now, we call it ACV, but the stories were originally from African immigrant women. So um, one thing we're looking at is, could we gather more stories? Right. So that's one thing we're thinking of. If we we had more time, can we gather more stories? And and poetically retell them. Right. And do it outside of research or within research? Um, outside of research. Right. Actually, um, right now, um, we're looking at funding through arts-based oh. uh, funders. Yeah, yeah. Um, my um, supervisor, she suggested that I talk to a friend of hers who is a writer. I told her about the project, and she says, it's art. And I went, <laughs> I go, really? She goes, no, it's art. And she goes, you should talk to a friend of mine who happened to be a funder. And she said, apply to the Ontario Arts Council. So we have, we'll see what happens. But yeah, like, it's really funny. It's easier to write to an arts grant than it is a research one. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can imagine that. You don't have to count your widgets so much, maybe. No, no, you still do. But it's like, you don't, you only have a little amount. So 16,000, done. (laughs) Fair enough. But talking to artists, like we, I've been talking to spoken word artists and community theater artists, and they see themselves in it. Right. They said, oh, I'd love to help you facilitate this process of gathering more stories. I showed a spoken word artist. She says, you know, I see this as being more interactive. You know, if you do get funding, I'd love to work with you in terms of getting the performers to act more and to perform more. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So those are things yeah. that we're thinking of. And So do you think it's having an impact? And, and if you do, like, uh, how do you know? That's the thing. How do you know? I, I I know it does have an impact in some sense with African Caribbean and Black women, especially not just women living with HIV, but women who are who are who are either don't know their status or who are ne- negative. Right. One thing I'm hearing from them is that it actually allows them to kind of unpack some of the feelings they have working in the sector as well, mm-hmm. and and feeling silenced about it but then they can feel more comfortable talking to their colleagues about it. So I've seen that. I also noticed that it has brought up this conversation or added to the conversation of how do we bring back home ways of working to our work into um, the Canadian context. Right, right, okay. I mean, just to finish off really, what are you most proud of in these five years of Because She Cares? That is not seen as a research project. You know, <laughs> yeah, like it's, I don't, it's really weird. Here I am, postdoctoral fellow, PhD, and my, the proudest thing I, I feel is when number one, people see themselves in it and, and not that it's 
a research project. When people say, that's my story and it's not their story, All right. that makes me happy. Or when people are surprised when they find out it's from a research study, they go, oh my God, it did feel real. Like they'll say that it did feel like real, like someone's real experience, but it didn't feel like research. Right. They go, what do you mean by that? And they said, it didn't feel like a paper or a report. It's something I, I get. I find that nice and sad. That people feel that research is something they don't get. Yeah. What does that mean? I, I know, James, we've talked about this. My whole goal as being a social worker is to work myself out of the business. And I'm still trying. <laughs> <laughs> I've done it in some senses and other senses I haven't. And I'm finding more and more that's what's happening. The collaborative, which is a group of women who support the project or people who support the project, they're taking more of a leadership role. Lori, you got to do this. You, we got to do that. And I hear more of the we than me, that's which great. is very hopeful. So my hope is in the next five years, it'll be truly out of my hands and into community's hands. I'll work myself out of because she cares <laughs> and not in a bad way, in a good way. Right. Well, that's fantastic. So now let's flash back to 2017 to season one, episode four, where it all began. So how did you take qualitative or conversational interviews and make them into poetry? What's your process? How did you, how did you do that? Well, you know, when you talk about, um, conversation there's a rhythm to it right you know the way way we speak often has body language often our voice goes up and down so there's a there's a movement to our voice and that to me is poetic so what I started noticing when I started talking with the women because I use oral narrative which is um, a common approach that we use for my culture I'm Afro-Jamaican um, so when I use oral narrative to gather their narratives what do you mean by oral narrative? It's more conversational than a regular qualitative interview. For instance, I start with one question and then I we do something called let it flow, where the women take me on this journey about their work experiences because that's what the topic was on. Right. So as they went through, it, you know, they would be very emotional. Sometimes I found that they're very excited, anger crying sometimes they're very political hitting things and and also too their you know their movement they're you know shaking their hands shaking their head i wanted to find a way to kind of put that into their narrative so um i use these different approaches to put in um, the things that we usually don't see in narratives such as body language and as i did that and as i kept on listening to it i started hearing the poetry within these women's voices and i felt the best way to honor it is actually to make it poetry right. so i started using transcription to put in the rhythm the flow and then you know um people's you know, statements turn into stanzas and lines and then when i would read it out loud listen to them and read it out loud i found that there were natural breaks so Poetry was actually, the woman led me to poetry, or what I say is I found poetry in oral narrative. Oh, that's really interesting. Thanks. So is there something about your personal experience that drove you to focus on this issue in this particular way? Well, there was, there, there's been a lot of experiences where I work um, a lot in the African-Caribbean Black community in terms of the response. 
And one thing I noticed is those particular stories often aren't heard um, when we talk about response activities or the actual movement in Canada. Also, too, I found that the women's stories particularly were really um, rich because the way they talked about working care and how it connected was something that I feel that we don't talk about in HIV. We talk about in terms of living with HIV, the women were talking about it in, in ways like activism, um, bringing care work back home, like the things they learn here, bringing it back home, the transnational care they do as mothers and other mothers. But also, um, I'm also a child of immigrants. And one thing I have noticed is the immigrant experience often is left out when we talk about HIV, particularly the experience of work and how sometimes a lot of these women had had lives in the response activities back home and then sometimes gets lost here or right. it's found, it's realized in different ways. And I thought that needed to be brought out. Right. That's why I did the study. Right. So talk to me about the, uh, your creativity then. So uh, about working, <laughs> about, but how, about working create, creatively in such a rational world like, as research. It's tough. Um, it's funny because um, my first degree is English writing, but it was technical writing. But I've always loved doing poetry and um, and writing and drama. Um, so I think that guided me. Um, but it is it is a difficult balance because right now I'm writing um, my my thesis, which is what I need to do to graduate <laughs> from school. And what I find is sometimes the creative voice gets lost in the academic prose voice, meaning I have to speak in a certain way in order to be heard in the academic world. What helped me is community-based research, because in community-based research, it allows us to have I call the 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 real person voice rather <laughs> than the academic right, voice. Right. And that helps me guide me to be more creative because I feel that that creative voice is more welcomed in the community world, which is a world I, I love working in. Sure. Yeah. So let's have a listen to one of the poems. Okay. So can you set it up for us? And what, what are we about to hear now? You're about to hear us uh, retelling a poem called Listen to Her. It's a choral poem. It's basically all 10 narrators um, providing their advice on how we can make um, HIV-related work more careful work for African immigrant women living with HIV. Okay, and who's participating in this poem today? It's a group of us. Uh, we are a group of um, people who work in the response, um, men and women, um, allies, and people living with HIV. And the reason why we've collected together is because we care. And we want to ensure that the words that the narrators have spoken to us get transmitted and shared, and we can learn from it as well. Great. All right. So I asked her, what advice would you give an aid service organization or someone else who hires people living with HIV? This is what she said. Shift your mentality of people living with HIV. Just because we are positive doesn't mean we don't know how to do our jobs. Sometimes you say we need to empower PHAs to do stuff. And then you don't give us that opportunity to be empowered. How is this empowerment going on when you don't give us the chance? Listen to people living with HIV. We're the best advisors. We know what's best for the community and what's best for us because we are the community. Work properly with us. This means understanding our issues and consider the issues that we may bring. It's not just the person living with HIV who needs to understand 
It may be you as the service provider, researcher, or employer who needs to understand living with HIV and AIDS. Working properly with us means taking responsibility for yourself. Build our capacity. Look at what we bring on board. We don't need the papers to prove what we know. Listen to what we are saying. Listening and learning should go both ways, not just one way. Keep safe our information. Make sure you keep everything confidential. You shouldn't disclose our information or our status without getting consent from us. Don't forget we came to work in HIV AIDS service organizations because of the greater and meaningful involvement of people living with HIV. Never forget that. Put something in place for those moments when the work overwhelms us. We live multiple roles, wear different hats. It's very difficult to juggle between peer professional, peer professional. We need your help and understanding so we can balance all these roles. Support us in our work. What does support look like if I'm a peer? I need a place to debrief. Sometimes I need a place to debrief about you. I used to debrief with my peers. Now that I'm a service provider and my peers are my clients, who could I debrief with? Know our health, our health needs. If you're employing us, you need to know what we need to work for you. There may be times when we can come to work, not because we don't want to work, but because we cannot work that day. Some days we can wake up and can't do anything. The body just say no that day. And if a person with HIV works for an employer who doesn't understand us, it's difficult. Understand, you're taking in a person living with HIV. You're not just giving us a job with a salary. You're giving us a job because of what we bring to the table and what we can learn. Understand that in the process, I may fall down. You as an agency should have a strategy or a policy to help me come back up. Be prepared to do capacity building. If you really want JIPA to work, be prepared to invest in capacity building. Don't just employ people with HIV and then set us up for failure. You might destroy us for life. Employ us, give us employment, not just understanding, not just writing our resumes. We want more, we deserve more, we want jobs. Help us get off ODSP. So that is her advice. Give us a shoulder, care for us, the way you first cared for me as a client. Give us support, have that understanding, accept us for who we are. Give us jobs, but for us to deliver, support us through it. Give us opportunities, build our capacity, build your capacity. And a final piece of advice. Give, Give us, us the pay, pay that, that we deserve. deserve. I love that last line. And a final piece of advice. <laughs> Give us the pay that we deserve. Yes. Right? Like, so, and that was verbatim. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So what themes emerge for you as the most common from the work? Um, um, greater respect. And, yeah. and I think um, that respect stemmed from both being recognized as people who have capacity 
um, and also building that capacity as well. It's a two-way street. Um, one thing that came out of, out of the study totally was this notion of reciprocity, um, give back and get back, right? right? And what came out of this poem is that the, the women were feeling they weren't getting as much as they were giving. So they use this poem to actually amplify that message. Um, one thing that comes out a lot in terms of the pay that we, we deserve is this whole notion of income security. Mm-hmm. And it's great to get a job, but if it means that they are still living precariously in terms of on ODSP and, and what that, what that entails, um, that can be problematic for some women. So to actually provide them with greater support in navigating that. Also in terms of um, providing supports in terms of not just working, but moving on up. Um, a lot of the women talked about going back to school mm-hmm. and some of it was a, an aspiration that they wanted to, um, to um, pursue and others it was to add to their work and having those supports. Um, also, um, another thing women talked about is finding greater ways to move throughout the right. work world and in HIV. Right. But there was also a thing that um, was really interesting is how they talked about um, being um, about disclosure. And, and I want to talk about that a little bit. Some of the women were quite open about their status and their work, but because they were unquote unquote peers, but sometimes they weren't necessarily open in all venues of their life. And they were worried that sometimes their work would overtake that need for privacy in some sense. Other times they felt that being a peer um, took them away from getting supports. For instance, if they were an employee in an ASO, no longer being a client. Right. In the same way. Or if their friends were now clients, no longer having those supports. So were, were you surprised at the power of combining multiple voices into a choral poem? Yeah, um, I really was um, surprised when we actually performed and practiced it. Um, we actually have done a performance of Listen to Her at um, a conference, an HIV conference recently. Um, there was five of us and... Um, to introduce us, we're called the Because We Care Collaborative. We're people who work um, in the HIV response as community and peers who identify as African, Caribbean, or Black. So when I actually was listening um, to five people, five women, perform it, um, what I noticed is how the stories intermeshed and then how people's voices became loud at particular spots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, there, and, and it kind of... Um, illuminated the political relevance of telling these poems um, or telling these stories as poems at a conference where a lot of researchers who are employers are going to be. Right, right. And um, actually the reaction was really interesting because um, the reaction ranged from, oh my God, she's doing a poem to, oh, that's really harsh. Some of the things we said. <laughs> And, and then, and then some people reacted a day later after the conference and actually came up to me as like, first I was just shocked at how you guys did it. And then I was shocked at what you said and what, right. what resonated for me. Right. So that's when I realized there's some power in using arts based approaches like poetry mm-hmm. to share a message that's particularly political and also one that can actually um, be told to the mess, the message can be made to the people who should hear it. Right. Yeah. So what was the 
participant response then in hearing their own words and poetry and hearing it back to them? That became really resonant when I actually, the process of doing the poems um, wasn't just me. Um, after I did the deep listening, transcribing it and creating the poems out of people's narratives, I actually went back to the narrators themselves, the women who I interviewed, mm -hmm. and I actually showed them to get their permission. I go, here's your original statements like their transcript and then here's the poem that came out of it and i would read it to them okay um i did the reading to them in two ways first of all for us to hear if it was stilted also to hear if this was truly their story or me interpreting it in a particular way right, right. so it was what we call a member check but basically allowing them to verify that this still is their story. In some cases, we added to the poem. Um, we added more narrative to it. And other times it galvanized more conversation, which would create another, another right. opportunity to write poems. Right. Um, but more particularly, um, one woman actually said to me, I've never have received my narrative back to me. I've done all these studies and have never received my narrative back to me for her story, she said. Right. And I, it just shook me. I went, whoa, how are we doing research that people don't get their stories back? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So what impact do you think that projects like these can have? Well, I think one thing is using creative methods, um, such as poetry and performance, might allow us to look think more creatively about knowledge transfer and exchange, or KTE is what we call it. Um, and secondly, trying to find um, approaches to research that can that can bring the community back. My approach mm. actually was, you know, geared using um, oral narrative is very much congruent with um, African and Caribbean culture. And using um, poetry is something that's strong in both the Caribbean and very much African context. So trying to find methods that what I call are culturally responsive mm -hmm. and trying to integrate them as much as possible with the people you were working with and for. Um, also, too, for me personally, is kind of finding another voice that is not just the academic voice or the research voice was actually very helpful for me. Um, it made me think that maybe we need to find ways of doing our work that's congruent with the ways in which we know as, um, as you know, as I know as a person of Jamaican descent. Yeah. All right. So now let's fast forward to 2022 and hear Lori's responses to our rapid fire questions. Okay, Lori. So as you know, we always end podcasts with the five this or that questions. So here we go. So excited. Yes. Yes, I'm very excited as well. Let's start with beer or wine. Wine. Mm, red or white. I may have to go six questions now. Rosé. Oh, rosé. You're so difficult. Um, okay. Moderna or Pfizer? The one that's available. Doctor or PhD? PhD. When I have to use it. Not always. Yeah. I'd be loving doctor. But anyway. Okay. I like using doctor when I'm in places of privilege so that they realize that I am one. <laughs> right, fair enough. And at airport lines, and that's a long story. <laughs> okay, well, I look forward to hearing that one. Okay, singing or dancing? Dancing. Yeah. Shower 
or tub? Tub. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you, Laurie, so much. And we will thank see you, you, hopefully in person, sometime soon. Sometime. Okay. <laughs> That's it for us this month. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time on podcast. And if you have any comments or questions or ideas for new episodes, send me an email at podcastforyou at gmail.com. That's the number four and the letter U. Podcast is produced by The Positive Effect, which is brought to you by ReachNexus at the MAP Center for Urban Health Solutions. The Positive Effect is a facts-based lived experience movement powered by people living with HIV and can be visited online at positiveeffect.org. Technical production is provided by David Grine of the Acme Podcasting Company in Toronto.